1: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Clark Hilton is engineering, capably engineering today's program. James Blend is producer. Today, we have quite a lineup. We're going to talk with Jonathan Morrow. He's the director of cultural engagement for Impact 360 Institute. And they, along with the Barna Group, have published a seminal report titled Gen uh, Gen Z, as in Generation Z, The Culture, Beliefs and Motivations Shaping the Next Generation. And this generation stands out as very unique from uh, their parents, the millennials, and generations before. It's a fascinating study. We'll talk about it and also let you know uh, how you can acquire a copy. It's a great resource for pastors and parents and uh, church workers and so on, grandparents, to better understand this Generation Z. I think they're 13 to 18, somewhere in that age range. Anyway, he'll join us later this hour to talk more about that. Also, um, we'll talk with Michael Sargent. He's a policy analyst in Transportation and Infrastructure with the Institute for Economic Freedom and Opportunity. We're going to talk about the discussion that's going on now about our crumbling infrastructure. He says that's an exaggeration. And he says uh, on uh, vital assets that span states and regions, they are in satisfactory condition. There are things that need to happen, but to overstate the problem in order to generate significant federal money is not putting the... uh, Uh, the emphasis on the right uh, aspect of of the issue. So we'll talk with him about that. And we'll have a conversation with Phyllis Bennett, who's the Director of Women's Transformational Leadership Training at the uh, Women's Center for Ministry at Western Seminary, and Whitney Willard. She is the uh, writer, a speaker, a women's Bible study teacher, and will be the keynote uh, at uh, IGNITE, Hope for a Broken World, the women's conference coming up on Saturday, May, uh, March the 3rd, at uh, Vancouver Church. A great women's conference, again, sponsored by Western Seminary, and we'll talk with them about that. And if you haven't yet registered, let me encourage you to do that sooner than later. In fact, we have a link to do that on both the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page, and you can go to kpdq.com for the address, or you can just Google Ignite 2018. Make sure it's the Western Seminary event, because it's a title that's used for a couple of other things as well. So check that out, and they'll be joining us in the latter part of uh, the next hour. Well, today was very sobering for those who listened in on a hearing earlier today that featured intel chiefs that said, don't be fooled by North Korea's smile campaign, but went much, much deeper than that to put into a broader context the challenges that the United States faces uh, from its enemies. And chief among them was not Russia, although there are growing concerns about Um, their attempt to influence um, our elections and society. But China was at the top of that list and some other concerns were raised as well. Well, these top U.S. intelligence officials warned lawmakers today not to be fooled by North Korea's diplomatic outreach at the Olympic Games. In other words, the vice president had it about right and reminded Congress at a high-profile hearing that the dictatorship still represents an existential threat to the United States. The appearance of Kim Jong-un's sister, Kim Yo-yong, at the uh, Olympics has led to gushing Coverage for some American media outlets with stories suggesting Pyongyang's delegation is diplomatically outflanking the United States, uh, which one might expect the uh, analysis from some of these commentators. But nonetheless, at a Senate Intelligence Committee hearing, top officials and lawmakers said nothing has changed from the oppressive regime, which has been ramping up its nuclear program in recent months. Uh, We're all uh, we've all watched over the last week with the Smile campaign North Korea has inflicted on the South Korean people. The South Korean people seem to have been charmed to some degree. Some of them seem to have been captivated by it. Senator James Reich of um, Idaho said, from my point of view, I think it's nothing but a stall by the North Koreans to further develop what they are trying to do. And I suspect, in my judgment, we need to be very, very cautious uh, of this, he added. Well the Director of National Intelligence, Dan Coates, he agreed with the assessment and said the North Koreans' aggression was still an existential threat, potentially to the United States and also to North Korea itself, not to mention Japan. The provocative nature and the instability Kim has demonstrated is potentially a significant threat to the United States. Decision time is coming ever closer in terms of how we respond to this. Lieutenant General Robert Ashley, head of the Defense Intelligence Agency, described the much more deliberate effort in terms Terms of readiness from Kim as opposed to his father. He also advised that we should not be misled by recent events in the Olympics. CIA Director Mike Pompeo, he added that Kim still looks to threaten the United States and that there has been no change in the regime's outlook despite the diplomatic outreach. And a lot of people have forgotten the big display, the military display that took place just hours before the opening ceremony in North Korea. Uh, there is no indication there is any strategic change in the outlook of Kim Jong un and his desire to retain his. Nuclear capacity to threaten the United States of America. No change there, he said. Well, the Trump administration has taken a tougher line against the regime, successfully guiding a number of rounds of sanctions through the U.N. Security Council. President Trump has also used bellicose language against the regime, nicknaming uh, Kim "Rocket Man." as he nicknamed so many others. The hearing today covered considerable ground. The officials also warned about the possibility that Russia would look to interfere in the 2018 election cycle, which was almost a duh moment. We expect Russia to continue using propaganda, social media, false flag personas, sympathetic spokesmen, and other means to influence, to try to build on its wide range of operations and exacerbate social and political fissures in the United States, Coates said. There should be no doubt that Russia perceives its past efforts. As successful and views the 2018 U.S. midterm elections as a potential target for Russian influence operations, he said. While officials refused to be um, drawn into specifics, but they said that we offer further details in a classified session in the afternoon, the comments came on the heels of those made by Secretary of State Rex Tillerson. Uh, in which he said there was always evidence of Russian attempts to meddle in the 2018 midterms and, in fact, the 2016 elections, the 2014 elections, and every U.S. election for the last decade or so. I don't um, uh, I don't know that I would say that we are uh, better prepared because the Russians will adopt, will adapt, rather, as well, Tillerson said. To this point, if it's their intention to interfere, they're going to find ways to do that. We can take steps. We can... Uh, Take, But this is something that once they decide they're going to do it, it's very difficult to preempt. And they did make the the statement that it wasn't clear that we were better prepared today than we were before the 2016 uh, election. So it wasn't very heartening to hear that while we are more aware of and we're talking about and uh, following efforts by the Russians to influence the United States elections and other cultural issues, We're not any better prepared to respond. Meanwhile, ex national security adviser Susan Rice sent an unusual email to herself the day President Trump was sworn into office, documenting former Barack Obama's guidance at a high level meeting about how law enforcement should investigate Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election. Two Republican senators said uh, on Monday. According to Senate Majority uh, Committee, or rather, Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Chuck Grassley and Senator Lindsey Graham, uh, A Partially unclassified email was sent by Rice on the 20th of January 2017 and appears to document a January 5th meeting that included the president, well, President Obama, then FBI Director James Comey, then Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates, then Vice President Joe Biden and Rice herself. In the email, the president's national security advisor wrote, President Obama began the conversation by stressing his continued commitment to ensuring that every aspect of this issue is handled by the intelligence and law enforcement community. Communities by the book, the president stressed that he is not asking about initiating or instructing anything from a law enforcement perspective. He reiterated that our law enforcement team needs to protect as it normally would by the book. The email also appears to reflect the president's guidance on sharing sensitive information with both the Russians and the incoming administration. And Rice wrote that Obama said he wants to be sure that as we engage with the incoming team, we are mindful to ascertain if there is any reason that we cannot share information fully as it relates to Russia. She added the president asked Comey to inform him of anything changes in the next few weeks, which, of course, he would have been out of office at the time. Uh, That should affect how we share classified information with the incoming team. Comey said he would. Grassley and uh, Graham, one from Iowa, the other from South Carolina, released the email on Monday. They said they uncovered it as part of their oversight of the FBI and the Department of Justice and claimed it raises new questions. It strikes us as odd that among our Uh, your activities in the final moments of the final day of the Obama administration, you would feel the need to send yourself such an unusual email purporting to document a conversation involving President Obama and his interactions with the FBI regarding the Trump-Russia investigation. They wrote in their letter about Rice. And they added, in addition, despite your claim that President Obama repeatedly told Mr. Comey to proceed by the book, substantial questions have arisen about whether officials at the FBI as well as the Justice Department and State Department actually did proceed by the book yet another element to consider in this ever-expanding debacle 16 minutes after four o'clock you're listening to the georgine rice show
1: you're listening to the georgine rice show podcast is aired on 93.9 kpdq
2: 22 minutes after four o'clock you're listening to the georgine rice show brought to you in part today by liberty coin and currency well an Iranian drone flying into Israeli airspace on Saturday triggered a mushrooming crisis involving retaliatory strikes and counterstrikes in Syria. After its provocative violation of Israeli airspace, the drone was destroyed by an Israeli helicopter and Israel responded with airstrikes on an Iranian commanded control trailer from which the drone was launched from the base in Syria. An Israeli F-16 fighter involved in that operation was shot down by Syrian missiles and crashed inside Israel injuring one pilot it was the first Israeli fighter plane lost in combat since 1982, the war in Lebanon. Well, Israel responded by launching a second wave of attacks on 12 Syrian and Iranian targets in Syria, including Syrian SA-17 and SA-5 anti-aircraft batteries and Iranian forces deployed in the country in support of Syrian dictator Bashar Assad. Well, this is not the first time that Israeli airspace has been violated by Iranian drones, but this incident comes with rising tensions between Iran and Israel. Last month, a senior Iranian An Iranian official visited the Lebanese side of the Lebanon border with Israel and made provocative comments about the liberation of Jerusalem. Ayatollah Ibrahim Raisi, who lost Iran's presidential election last year but might still be in line to become the next supreme leader, was escorted within a United Nations buffer zone by Hezbollah officials who were uniformed and armed. That was a violation of U.N. Security Council resolutions that prompted Israel to warn the Security Council that Iran was destabilizing the region and subverting the U.N. peacekeeping role in Lebanon. Well, Israel has remained wary about intervening in Syria's complex, multi-sided civil war that the United States could very well uh, get uh, become drawn into, but has been drawn into a deepening confrontation with Iran and its Hezbollah surrogates who've exploited the Syrian war to boost the flow of sophisticated weaponry to expand Hezbollah's threat to Israel. Israel has launched scores of pinpointed airstrikes to destroy Iranian-supplied arms inside Syria before they could be transferred to the Lebanon, Lebanon-based terrorist group, but None of its strikes have been as large as Saturday's attacks. Hezbollah is thought to have amassed an arsenal of about 150,000 rockets that it has dispersed amid civilian buildings and underground facilities covertly built in Lebanon. Iran, rather, has provided the bulk of these weapons, including increasingly accurate longer range missiles capable of reaching most targets in Israel. Russia, which controls the airspace in western Syria where the Iranian drones were launched and where Israel conducted retaliatory strikes called on all sides to step back from further escalation. We urge all sides to exercise restraint and to avoid any actions that could lead to an even greater complication of the situation, the Russian foreign ministry said Saturday. An Israeli military spokesman said Israel has no interest in further escalation, but that it would extract a heavy price for such aggression. He said Iran was playing with fire by violating Israeli airspace and stressed that the drone shot down was on a military mission sent to sent an operated by Iranian military forces. Israel essentially has signaled that it's willing to quit while it's ahead, but is ready to respond with more force if necessary. Iran now can choose to either bide its time and lick its wounds, waiting for another opportunity to launch another surprise attack, or escalate the crisis, probably through indirect attacks mounted by Hezbollah in Lebanon or Syria, or by Palestinian allies in Gaza. Tehran would be well advised to avoid a direct clash with Israel, that it is unlikely to win. It's more likely to adopt asymmetric attacks tactics, attack Israel indirectly using surrogate Shia militias and fight Uh, To the last Arab. In addition to Hezbollah, Iran has deployed some 20,000 fighters in Syria drawn from Iranian controlled militias manned by Iraqi, Afghan and Pakistani fighters. Hezbollah, as uh, Iran's chief surrogate, already is portraying the military clashes as a victory. It released a statement announcing that the downing of the Israeli F-16 jet fighter is the start of a new strategic phase that will limit Israel's ability to operate safely in Syrian airspace. Iran has escalated its hostile actions against Israel and the United States-led coalition in Syria as the war against ISIS has wound down. On February 7th, the United States launched air and artillery strikes against an armored column of pro-regime militias in Syria's eastern Deir-Ez-Zor province that it attacked a base of the U.S.-backed Syrian Democratic Forces where U.S. advisors were deployed. The Pentagon correctly justified the operation as an act of self-defense. Washington should also support Israel's action Saturday as a legitimate act of self-defense. The State Department issued a statement supporting Israel's sovereign right to defend itself, but the Trump administration needs to amplify that message through a statement by Secretary of State Rex Tillerson or a high-ranking White House official. Tillerson just embarked on a diplomatic trip to Jordan, Turkey, Lebanon, Egypt, Kuwait, uh, from the 11th to the 16th of this month, and the deteriorating situation in Syria will be a major item for discussion at every stop. Not, o- not only are all of these uh, states concerned about the destabilizing spillover effects cascading out of Syria, but all of them are part of the 74-member Global Coalition to Defeat ISIS that will convene a summit in Kuwait at the end of Tillerson's trip. In addition to conferring with the allies about how to defeat Iran's challenge in Syria, Tillerson will need to focus on how to cement a permanent defeat for ISIS in the Syrian and Iraqi areas. The Trump administration already has announced that it's going to maintain a limited U.S. military presence in northeastern Syria to train and support anti-ISIS militias. It should also ask U.S. allies to join in support of those plans and to cooperate to block the flight of thousands of foreign fighters seeking to return home after the defeat of ISIS and the caliphate. Only Washington can lead this broad coalition against ISIS and shape an effective and comprehensive multinational response to Iran's hostile plans in Syria. The the bottom line here is that both Israel and the United States increasingly are being drawn into the Syrian civil war, in large part because of Iran. Tillerson's prime goal on his current trip should be to chart a common course for a broad array of U.S. allies that are confronted with multiple threats emanating from Syria, but at the behest of Of Iran. By the way, Syria warned that Israel has more surprises uh, to come as tensions boil over there following that drone incident uh, that I mentioned. Meanwhile, for the second time uh, in as many months, a federal judge has banned the Trump administration from ending the Obama-era DACA program next month. Now, this is all very curious to me. The president, then President Obama, announced that he did not have the constitutional authority to make such a pronouncement, but now the courts are saying that it cannot be overturned. Now, the Supreme Court, in overturning DAPA has already indicated that if given the opportunity, they would likely overturn DACA as well, but the drama continues. U.S. District Judge Nicholas Gar or something very like that. In New York, ruled that Attorney General Jeff Sessions had erred in concluding that DACA is unconstitutional and granted a preliminary injunction sought by state attorney generals and immigrants who had sued the administration. The Justice Department had no immediate comment uh, after the ruling. Last month, U.S. District Judge William Alsop of San Francisco ruled that DACA must remain in place while litigation surrounding the program is ongoing. The U.S. Supreme Court is currently considering whether to take up the Trump administration administration's appeal of that ruling. Now, Trump announced last uh, this uh, past September that he was ending the DACA, or Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program. The move gave Congress a March 5th deadline to create a legislative replacement for the program, but was almost immediately challenged in the court. The White House has sought increased funding for border security, including a wall across the U.S.-Mexico border, in exchange for providing a path to citizenship for the 1.8 million immigrants under this, uh, that would qualify for this program. Now, you hear numbers 700,000, as high as 1.8 million. Uh, It depends on who has applied and whether or not that application deadline would be uh, extended, which is a, a possibility. Now, coming up, we're going to talk with Jonathan Morrow. He's the director of cultural engagement with Impact 360 Institute. The study that they, along with Barna Group, uh, have completed is Gen Z, the culture, beliefs and motivations shaping the next generation. This is the generation that follows the millennials. They are, in fact, being raised by the millennials. And I think you'll be very surprised. Uh, to learn um, what uh, what characterizes this generation and what challenges uh, the church faces in uh, ministering to them and uh, equipping them for future leadership, Jonathan Morrow up next.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, researchers have been talking for years about generational differences, especially when it comes to young adults born between 1984 and 1998. Those are the millennials. But now there's a new generation and they're becoming a cultural force in their own right. Produced in partnership with Impact 360 Institute, Gen Z, the culture, beliefs, and motivations shaping the next generation is Barna's most comprehensive research study investigating the perceptions, the experiences, and the motivations of 13- to 18-year-olds in Generation Z. The report is based on new interviews and analysis. It's uh, the best thinking that there is thus far on the worldview and priorities of teens in the next next generation. Um, also included are contributions from ministry practitioners, educators who share insights from their own vantage point, and multiple views of this multifaceted research. Uh, it's really written and is must read for pastors and teachers parents as they help tomorrow's christian leaders to grow well here to talk with us about that is jonathan morrow he's the director of cultural engagement with impact 360 institute to talk about this new uh, study gen z the culture beliefs and motivations shaping the next generation hey thank you so much for joining us
3: it's great to be with you today.
2: Now, for many of us, we're just learning for the first time that there is such a thing as Generation Z, and we're, we're still fixated on the millennials. Describe just generally who the Generation Z generation is.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So it's the generation after millennials, and Gen Z would be born between 1999 and 2015. There's about 69 or 70 million of them or so, and it's going to be probably the largest American generation. So... Uh, The survey that we conducted with the Barna Group um, is based on really that teenager uh, segment, so the kind of the leading tip of the spear, tip of the edge of Gen Z.
2: So one might assume that they are essentially just a reflection of the generation before them. They're just millennials, only younger. But there are some pretty significant differences between these generations.
3: Yes, there are. So the way I started getting at some of those differences is, is the Barna Group's been studying, you know, generations for the last 20 years, And they've asked the question, who has a biblical worldview? And so boomers, about 10% had a biblical worldview. Gen X, the generation after them, had 7%. Millennials had 6%. And Gen Z has 4% um, has a biblical worldview. So just at a global level, what you're seeing is that trajectory trending downward in terms of Gen Z uh, having a biblical worldview. They've got a couple other key defining characteristics um, around them that we discovered. One of them is that their views on gender and technology are very different, and, and in fact a lot more accelerated than even millennials were. And also, uh, we see that this issues around morality and spiritual confusion continue to uh, kind of become even more confused as we look at Gen Z.
2: Now, is this uh, the the result of the culture being very successful at uh, at educating, if you will, young people, or a failure of the church to influence young people in this Gen Z? Uh, to the degree that we would, would hope uh, was possible.
3: Yes, I think both of those are um, both of those are at play. One of the things you know that we found in the study is that you know Gen Z uses screens about four plus hours a day. About fifty seven percent do that, and so there's two things going on there. One is the exposure to the ideas and images themselves that are not necessarily building up a biblical worldview, but also just using the technology in and of itself it's also creating a lot of anxiety and depression in this generation, and we're seeing those at really unprecedented lengths. And so Gen Z is really kind of being shaped in many ways by the screens, but also by the actual technology themselves. And so that's something that's new that we really haven't had to deal with before because, you know, Gen X parents and millennial parents are the ones raising Gen Z now, and so that, that common omnipresence of, of screens is really a big deal. To put Great. that in perspective... Mm-hmm so you know, let's say they go to church and they have a fifteen minute youth group sermon. well, if they 're on screens four plus hours a day, which one of those do you think is going to win in terms of information? so if it 's just a matter of just sheer information it 's not even close that 's one of the reasons why this generation is being shaped in a way um, against and away a from a biblical worldview um, that continues that trajectory
2: now previous generations of parents had at least the perception that they had some control over what their uh, their kids uh, were exposed to millennials uh, less so as they were growing up. but millennials as parents, do they appreciate just how little um, control they have or influence over what their young people are exposed to because of the screen time and other resources that are available at hand and cannot be censored?
3: you know one of the one of the things that's interesting on that is we're finding that parents um, today are kind of being overprotective in the wrong ways and underprotective um, in the wrong ways, too. So, for example, you know, this generation, they're like, oh, let's you know, let's put 13 helmets on and let's bubble wrap you before you go out and ride your bike because that's dangerous. But here's a screen by the time you're four. Just play on that while I get my stuff done. And so one of the things that's happening there is there's just unprecedented um, just access to this generation. I mean, you know, one in, every, one in five searches on a smartphone is for pornography. So, I mean... Mm. It's just a very different world they're growing up in where, where, that, where that stuff finds them. And so just the law of averages with the amount of screen time. And, again, Christians aren't against technology, but I think what we have to recognize is, is this is a time where we may need to be a little more countercultural on this one because if we continue just to absorb images and information all the time, these increased rates of anxiety and depression will continue to go up among teens and uh, it's just not putting them in a healthy place, especially if we want to follow want them to follow Jesus for a lifetime.
2: Uh, you write in the preface that while it uh, it can be tempting in our culture to only pay attention to negative trends, there are positive trends as well, and we're going to talk about those as well. I, I just want to warn our listeners that there is a, there is another side to the story as well. But what do what of, uh, does Gen Z believe about the biggest questions of life?
3: Yeah, you know it's interesting. You know one of the things they see is that faith and science. Um, are not compatible. About 24% would say that they're not compatible. Um, they're also on um, one of the big things that shifted among this generation is their view of gender and sexuality. Mm-hmm. And and so, for example, 12% of Gen Z describe their own sexuality as something other than heterosexual. That's a pretty significant number, especially compared to millennials. 33% say gender is how a person feels and not their birth sex. That's a pretty significant number. Issue, and then in terms of morality, you know, they just about 24% say that morality basically changes based on society. So, in some ways, what we found when we did the focus groups with our work at Impact 360 Institute, when we work with the Barna Group, was there's just unprecedented moral and spiritual confusion. I mean, whether they were talking about you know, issues of sexuality or gender or God, they didn't want to offend anyone. Um, and there's part of that that's well meaning, right? You don't want to be offensive. But there was also another part that's like, well, I guess there's not really truth on this on this stuff. I just don't know. I'm so confused. That's what we kept seeing. And so, you know, one of the things as a whole of Gen Z is their, the rise of atheism. They're twice as likely as adults to be atheists in this generation, um, about 13%. That's pretty unusual. And so, again, these aren't going to make us run for the hills, but they do need to allow us to think about things differently to say, okay, how has this Gen Z been shaped in different ways? What are the best ways to equip them? And maybe the things that we've been doing for a long time Mm -hmm. aren't having the results that we think they are in terms of preparing them to to live well.
2: I suppose if we are paying attention to the culture, we shouldn't be surprised to learn that they're being shaped and influenced by the the broader secular culture. But do you think that we have largely underestimated the, the depth of that influence?
3: I think we have, and we haven't responded in kind. And here's what I mean by that. I think what we've done in the church, and this is well-meaning and well-intentioned, is we've tried to provide a lot of fun environments and a lot of entertainment around the church. The problem is that doesn't produce a lasting lasting faith. It doesn't produce resilience or understanding. So what we see is they don't know much about their beliefs, and the ones they do have are getting swamped and relativized by the surrounding culture, just by the sheer volume of information and media that they're taking in. In many ways, I think we've not adjusted to the world as it is. I still think a lot of people are seeing the world as they want it to be, and the problem is our students are just not ready when they make that switch in the high school years and head into the college years for that world. They're just kind of, you know, as my friend David Kenman at the Barna Group likes to say, you know, people are preparing these people Jerusalem when they live in digital Babylon, and there's a very different perspective yeah. that needs to be taken there.
2: Yeah. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. We're talking with the, uh, Jonathan Morrow. He's the director of cultural engagement with Impact 360 Institute. They, along with the Barna Group, produced in partnership, Gen Z, the culture, beliefs, and motivations shape next generation. Uh, it's uh, an excellent resource for pastors and teachers, parents, aunts and uncles, grandparents, to get a better understanding of who Gen Z is and what's uh, shaping their worldview. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show Podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Continuing a conversation with Jonathan Morrow, he's the director of cultural engagement with Impact 360 Institute. And they, along with the Barna Group, have produced uh, Gen Z, the culture, beliefs, and motivations shaping the next generation. And I think you may be surprised to to learn uh, the differences between millennials and Gen Z uh, just in that alone. It provides statistics on teens' views of themselves their spiritual lives, in the world. It provides comparative data with older adult generations and analysis of cultural trends that are forming that generation with infographics, data visualizations, and so on. It's an excellent, timely, and very useful resource to help equip the church to minister to, uh, to this generation. Uh, now, one of the things that you um, uh, that the study asks at the very beginning is, is Gen Z prepared to follow Jesus in a post-everything world? And the answer, just based on our brief conversation would be no, not yet. How would you answer that question?
3: Yeah, I I would agree. I think I I love Gen Z. They're smart. They're fun. They're creative. They're passionate. They're just not ready. And part of that is because we've kind of bubble wrapped that generation. We haven't challenged them in certain ways, appropriately so. And we've not trained them. I think we've entertained them, but we haven't trained them. And those are the things that are going to have to happen if we're going to see them really succeed well. Because Again, the reality is, is our culture is moving very fast, especially on the questions of sexuality and gender. This tyranny of tolerance is kind of squashing people into this mode saying, you must agree with me if you're going to have any voice. And so kind of a Christian mindset or a Christian approach when these students kind of try to express that, they're going to wilt if they're not prepared. And so they don't know what they believe in many ways. They don't know why they believe it. And they're interacting with people more and more. I mean, 39% said they regularly interact with people who believe differently than themselves, but I don't think they're ready to to really influence in those interactions, which is what I want to see and what we're trying to do at Impact 360.
2: Then you made a, a, a suggestion that uh, many of us are. are uh, responding to Gen Z as if we were in Jerusalem, when in fact Babylon is a better way to describe the culture today. Daniel, Ezekiel and other Hebrew elites, uh, they had to uh, confront the fact that they were displaced from the the, uh, tradition that they were familiar with, placed in an entirely different place. What can we learn from their example about this generation and the challenge we face as adults in the church and parents to influence them with the gospel in a way that will reach them where they are in the culture that they're in.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So like Daniel, you know, we we must kind of resolve not to um, defile ourselves in that sense of meaning, to just take everything in from this culture. See, culture is simply what people make of the world. So culture isn't bad in and of itself. The Bible talks about world, the world system as it gets embedded in culture, which pulls people away from life with God. So every generation of Christians has had to live at the intersection of faith and culture. This is our moment, so God has sovereignly and, and providentially placed us here. And so we need to be bold and courageous. But where does boldness and courageous, you know, courage come from? It comes from being equipped. It comes from knowing why you believe what you believe. It comes from a, a personal relationship with God that's real, that's not... Christianity or fairy tales for grownups kind of idea and so you know there's a sense in which we need to recognize that um, you know it it isn't that everyone is celebrating the fact you're a Christian anymore there was a time at least some places in the south or different parts of the country where yeah I guess everybody's a Christian right you know we're Americans apple pie and we're Christians but that's just not the case anymore and so we need to prepare ourselves for that to you know what it's gonna it's gonna cost you a little bit. You're gonna have to have some uncomfortable conversations, and you're gonna have to think these things through. The benefit is, though, is is Christianity really real and true, and is that what you believe? And that's what these students are gonna have to bless believe. believe. That's what it's, us as adults and pastors and leaders and people who care about them, we're gonna have to go. You know, is this real or not? This isn't kind of pretend or just kind of everybody's doing it. And those are new things like the prophets of old and like Daniel and like his friends when they were in Babylon, that they had to learn was, okay, how do we be faithful in this new environment, which isn't celebrating Christianity at every turn?
2: How does Generation Z uh, define itself um, and what makes them who they are?
3: You know, it's really interesting. Probably one of the most more surprising things is professional and educational achievement was number one. Um, Gender and sexuality was also very high. Um, family and background um, upbringing was number five, which is mm. unprecedented in all the other yes. generational research that Barna has done. And it's not as though family is unimportant, but this generation, in some ways, because of the environment they've been raised in and kind of a post-9-11 world, a lot of millennials were more idealists. What we're seeing among Gen Z is they're more pragmatists. They're, they're like, okay, how does this work? How do I survive? I need to have security and financial security. They say about 51% want to be happy. Happiness is the ultimate goal in life. And the way that many of them are defining that is through educational or financial success or professional success. So, so I think there's some opportunity there to help kind of recast a Christian vision of work and calling. And that's a really good thing. But this, this generation, I think, is going to be a lot more pragmatic uh, than the millennials um, were in, in the sense that they were more idealistic.
2: What are, what are their views on faith in the church?
3: Yeah, you know, faith in the church, one of the things that we found as they engaged on this question was was pretty interesting. One was half of church-going teens say that church seems to reject much of what science tells us, about 49%, of of about half of them um, said that. You know, what we also learned in the process was in terms of how important they thought the church was, they they basically said, you know, more than half of Gen Z says church involvement is either not to or not at all important. So it's kind of a mixed bag. They have some positive views of the church that they feel like they can ask questions there, so that's a good thing. But more and more of them are not seeing why it's all that important. And in fact, whereas more in the millennial generation, you'd have people who had had a bad experience with Christianity or the church, and we'd have to kind of undo some of that. this generation is more of a blank slate in that sense, they're like, Tell me about what do you mean by the church? I'm I'm not even going. I'm I'm not affiliating with religion. Not affiliating affiliating with Christianity. So what's the point? Tell me about Christianity. What is this? And so that's a little bit of a different posture we're seeing in this generation, uh, in Gen Z, when they talk about how they want to be involved in the church.
2: Now we've talked largely about things that would be very concerning to uh, to parents, grandparents, and adults who would otherwise be. Um, uh, be concerned. But as I mentioned earlier, there's also good news in this report. God is not surprised by the formation of a new generation. He's not taken aback, wringing his hands about what am I going to do now? This is a whole new ballgame. So this, this may come as a surprise to us, but it's not a surprise to God. Tell us some of the virtues of Gen Z that um, once they have uh, come to, to faith in Christ and they're serious about their faith will translate into a powerful generation of believers that will turn the world upside down.
3: Yeah, you know, one of the things that all this technology in a good way is, is more than any generation, if you can think it, you'll be able to do it. And that's the really optimistic side is that they'll be actually able to take all that passion and the access. I mean, you can literally create movements overnight and, make aware- and draw awareness overnight. That's, another, that's one really positive thing. Another positive thing is that nearly half of teens want factual evidence to support their beliefs. That's a really good news, because when it comes to Christianity, rather than kind of this, hey, just believe it because this blind faith kind of thing, they're saying, no, we want to know what's real. Um, We have questions, and we want to know what kind of what the evidence is around that, you know, and that's an important thing. I think the fact that they want to kind of pursue an education and a career and some of those kind of things means that their views towards adulthood, I think, are a little bit more like, hey, there might be a time to actually grow up. Now, their vision of what that means will need to be informed, but there there is a kind of a leaning towards some desire for responsibility. In fact, when we asked them which they wanted more, freedom or responsibility, responsibility just barely beat out freedom on that. Um, in that sense, as they kind of defined what it means to be an adult. So I think there's some real positives about this generation. Again, they're smart, they're creative, they're passionate. We just have to find better ways of equipping them so that when they get to those moments, they're ready to have real influence for, for Christ and his kingdom.
2: How can our listeners acquire a copy of Gen Z, The Culture, Beliefs, and Motivations Shaping the Next Generation?
3: Yeah, they can go to whoisgenz.com, that's whoisgenz.com, and they can check out this full report as well as some other infographics and other uh, resources and articles that can help them better understand and equip engage Gen Z.
2: Whoisgenz.com. Jonathan Morrow, thank you so much for talking with us today. I really appreciate it.
3: Hey, thanks for having me on.
2: Again, uh, Jonathan Morrow is the Director of Cultural Engagement with Impact 360 Institute. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. News and traffic up next.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show Podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, good afternoon, and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part by ZeroRes. In this hour, we're going to talk with Michael Sargent. He's a policy analyst in transportation and infrastructure at the Institute of Economic Freedom and Opportunity at the Heritage Foundation. We're going to talk about uh, calls for infrastructure improvement based on the fact that it's crumbling. Well, he says that's an overstatement. There are other challenges and problems that make it very difficult to make improvements. We're going to talk about uh, these vital assets and some of the changes that would... Uh, make um, improvements more cost-effective and certainly more timely. And we're going to talk with Phyllis Bennett. She's the Director of Women's Transformational Leadership Training. She's the Director at the Women's Center for Ministry at Western Seminary and uh, really is the visionary of um, the upcoming women's conference, Ignite. We'll also talk with Whitney Willard. She is a writer, a speaker, a women's Bible teacher here in Portland. She's also the keynote for Ignite, Hope for a Broken World. That's coming up on uh, Saturday, March the 3rd at Vancouver Church. And I would encourage you to check out uh, the website for more information at Western Seminary about Ignite and an opportunity to really equip yourself to extend the hope and love of Christ outward, as well as be reassured and strengthen in your own uh, need to um, have that, uh, that hope that is unwavering. So we'll uh, talk with them about that a little later in the five o'clock hour. Well, a $45 monthly fee could end up costing big labor billions. Public unions are getting nervous. Those who don't like how they operate are claiming the free lunch may soon be over. Well, the Supreme Court is stepping in. An explosive case regarding government employees and the First Amendment that the Supreme Court's going to hear on the 26th of this month could redefine the relationship between public unions and workers. The petitioner, Mark Janice, works at the Illinois Department of Health Care and Family Services and didn't like that a certain amount was deducted from his paycheck. He didn't believe he should be forced to pay union dues or fees just to be allowed to work for the state. He didn't agree with the 1.3 million member ask me union politics and so believed under the First Amendment he couldn't be forced to contribute. In his court filing, Janice quotes Thomas Jefferson who said, and first he says it in... Um, In Latin, but it means compel a man to furnish contribution of money for the propagation of opinions which he disbelieves is sinful and tyrannical. Well, the Supreme Court agreed to hear the case. Public sector unions are bracing for a major blow in this potentially landmark Supreme Court's case called Janus versus Ask Me. Uh, if the court uh, finds for Janice, the employee of the state, it could have a major effect on labor unions. Without compulsory fees, union funding would or could decrease precipitously. States might attempt workarounds, paying employees less rather than deducting from their paychecks and passing along the savings to unions, but that sort of thing could be politically difficult to pull off. Well, the merits of the case and 40 years of Supreme Court precedent and sound law are on our side. So says Lee Sanders, or rather Saunders, president. President of Ask Me. For Saunders, strong unions are important because they offer the strength and numbers workers need to fight for the freedoms they deserve, such as health care and retirement plans. The merits of the case and 40 years of Supreme Court president, he says on their side, well, the central question in Janice is this Should the court overrule its 1977 decision, Abood versus Detroit Board of Education? Uh, In that case, the Supreme Court declared that school teachers could be required to pay fees to public unions as long as the money was spent on the costs of collective bargaining and related issues and not on ideological causes. Well, court watchers may be getting a sense of deja vu from this case, Janice. In the past several years, the Supreme Court has already looked at this question a couple of times. There was the Harris versus Quinn in 2014, where the court determined that non-union employees couldn't be forced to pay fees to labor unions, even though they received compensation from government sources that was determined through collective bargaining. The case was decided 5-4 with the five justices generally considered conservative Samuel Alito, Anthony Kennedy, John... Um, John Roberts, Anthony Scalia, and Clarence Thomas, comprising the majority, and the four justices generally considered liberal, Elena Kagan, Stephen Breyer, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and Sonia Sotomayor, dissenting. So the court has taken up the case, and not that long ago. Well, the, um, more, than, uh, more to the point uh, was Friedrichs versus California Teachers Association in 2016 which asked if a school district requiring employees to join a union or pay fees infringed on their First Amendment rights of free speech and assembly. In other words, the court was being asked to reconsider Abood. And they might have done just that, except that Associate Justice Scalia died before the case could be decided. That left the court split with four liberals, four conservatives, so they simply put out a one-line opinion that affirmed the lower court decision, leaving the question for another day. Well, now, with Janice, that day has come. The biggest change since Frederick's, then, is not the facts of the case, but the makeup of the court. Scalia has been replaced with Associate Justice Neil Gorsuch. Many believe he'll be the fifth vote to overturn boot if President Barack Obama's choice to replace Scalia um, Merrick Garland had been seated. It's possible the court wouldn't even be hearing the case. Uh, in fact, many experts see the decision to take up the case is a sign that the court is ready to side with Janus and overrule their earlier precedent. As uh, one legal analyst, Judge Andrew Napolitano, notes, Justice Gorsuch is pretty much a champion of the the choice of individuals in this type of environment. Add that the four justices already leaning his way, and it looks like this is uh, uh, ready to hand a victory to Janice. Well, many states might not be happy with this kind of ruling, but as Napolitano notes, the First Amendment supersedes state um, uh, arrangements with labor. Indeed, Napolitano, a civil libertarian, uh, would nail it, would rather hail it decision on behalf of Janice and hopes everyone who believes that the First Amendment means what it says would be uh, would applaud the decision. One argument against changing a boot is that it is firmly established law and the states have learned how to work with it. Now is not the time to overturn it. That would be one argument uh, to the contrary. A change in the law many fear would turn um, quite a few workers into free riders who won't uh, won't have to pay for the unions but will still get to enjoy the benefits of collective bargaining. Then there's the claim that present day practices are consistent with the First Amendment. One person who has argued that uh, is uh, in an amicus brief. The court has received more than 70 briefs, by the way, is Eugene Volka. He's a professor of law at UCLA and noted um, uh, expert on the First Amendment issues. In fact, he uh, goes even further than the position of the court uh, in Abood, stating that he doesn't believe that requiring people to pay money is a First Amendment problem even if the money is used for ideological expression. He notes that we're required to pay our taxes and some portion of that is used by the government to express its views and that's not viewed as speech restriction. Well, He doesn't see why union fees should be treated any differently. For his part Napolitano can't summon up too much sympathy for these unions since they've gotten themselves into the situation. As he puts it, some labor leaders believe this will be uh, an almost fatal blow, uh, blow rather. And um, uh, that may be their fault. No one is saying that labor unions shouldn't exist, uh, that they have, a, have to make themselves attractive so that people want to join voluntarily rather than under the state's compulsion. We'll see what actually happens. Again, the state is going to, or rather the uh, Supreme Court is taking up the issue on the 26th of February. Trying to get that R in there. Up next, we'll talk with uh, Michael Sargent. He's a policy analyst in transportation and infrastructure. Is our infrastructure crumbling or is it something just short of that? And what other problems are making it difficult to make the uh, needed repairs and uh, keeping the costs high? We'll talk with him about that in just a moment.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest, Michael Sargent, writing for The Daily Signal, reminds us that in his State of the Union address, President Donald Trump described the goal of his infrastructure plans to cover the nation with gleaming new roads built with American grit to emulate the great projects of the past, such as the Empire State Building. But in the rush to formulate a plan to revitalize the nation's infrastructure, many have invoked the myth that our infrastructure is crumbling and is in an unprecedented disrepair. This is quite simply a mischaracterization. Well, Michael Sargent joins us to talk about how that's uh, uh, misleading. He's a policy analyst in Transportation and Infrastructure at the Institute for Economic Freedom and Opportunity at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us.
4: Thanks for having me, Georgine.
2: Well, there has been a lot of talk about the fact that the you know we're just a, a minute or two away from things just crumbling beneath our feet. Um, this is a mischaracterization that is um, built on on fact in some areas. Or how is this misleading? And where do we actually stand in re- in regards to our infrastructure? yeah calling our infrastructure
4: crumbling is definitely an exaggeration. Uh, I'm not suggesting that everything is is in perfect condition, but when you actually look at the data um, about our major assets, things like the national highway system, our airports, or our bridges, uh, our infrastructure actually uh, fares quite well and is actually improving. for For instance, when you look at bridges, the number that were um, uh, deemed structurally deficient, which doesn't mean unsafe. It just means they require extensive maintenance. That number of bridges has declined by half over the last 25 years and now sits at only 9%. Of our bridges. And it's a similar story with our highways and our airports move more people more safely than anywhere else. So while there is work to be done to to call our infrastructure decrepit and and, and about to collapse is is just a mischaracterization.
2: Now, is that a useful uh, use of uh, language to try to extract more money? Why is that exaggeration used in this discussion about our nation's infrastructure, particularly as it relates to the federal government's oversight?
4: That's right. You have a huge lobby here in D.C. that wants more infrastructure spending. That uh, constantly invokes this hyperbole, and that there's there's really one report from the civil engineers that everyone points to, without really acknowledging uh, that they are the ones that directly benefit from additional infrastructure spending um, through jobs and, and more money um, that that they'll have at their disposal. I'm not saying that the report is completely. Um, bunk, but I think people just have to realize that there is a lot of money to be made by trying to uh, scare people into spending more money out of Washington.
2: Mm. I have to admit, every time I cross a bridge, and there are lots of them here in in the Portland area where I live, I think about um, statements like that, that, you know, our bridges are about to crumble beneath us. And I might accelerate just a little bit thinking, well, maybe, maybe that's true. Now, you point out in your uh, column that this should cause taxpayers to think twice about the need for massive federal spending. Uh, but there is a need for public structures that require repair like local roads uh, that need repaving, decrepit locks uh, to refurbish, water systems to replace. But there are impediments to making that happen so that things that actually need to be done are, are uh, really uh, prevented or at least delayed dramatically uh, by regulation and uh, how things are structured.
4: Yeah, that's right. And one of the things that the president um, deserves uh, praise for is he's looking at the broken permitting and environmental reform processes which can delay projects for years, if not decades. And that's not only for uh, basic public road and bridge projects. Those those, um, reviews and regulations end up affecting a huge um, sectors of the economy, things like telecommunications, um, energy exploration, mining. These are now uh, being strangled by excessive regulations in Washington, and we really need to go and and, um, figure out a better way to uh, expedite the process while still maintaining um, protections for the environment.
2: You write that on average, it takes more than five years just to receive an environmental impact statement. That's one step of uh, many in the process of trying to move forward with uh, major infrastructure projects.
4: Yeah, that's right. And and that's just for um, generally basic projects like highways. Um, like I like I just mentioned Um, there are some projects that end up being tied up for decades. There was a mine um, out west that uh, waited 17 years just to get an environmental impact statement. And that doesn't even uh, factor in uh, other permits that need to be um, acquired to move forward with the projects. And so that is a lot of money that is just tied up uh, in, in these huge cumbersome processes. And most other developed nations don't uh, do things this way. We see them move much more um, expeditiously when it comes to their environmental review without uh, any uh, negative impact on the environment. So this is something that we have to go and change.
2: Now, some would would argue that moving expeditiously is the equivalent of moving recklessly. But you just mentioned that without sacrificing the environment, it's possible to move more efficiently in a direction toward uh, infrastructure repairs. Yeah, that's right. And like I just said, uh, other developed countries. Uh, move much quicker when it comes to environmental
4: review processes and it's not necessarily that you're skimping on the reviews but I mean the way we're doing things right now you basically have to get approval from a bunch of different agencies that don't really talk to each other and so you'll have uh, agencies doing reviews uh, at completely different times when they could be done um, concurrently you'll have reviews that uh, could end up being used uh, multiple times Mm -hmm. instead of having to do different reviews. Um, And it would make a lot more sense just to to be able to centralize it and uh, have better coordination amongst the agencies rather than just kind of having all this willy-nilly uh, studies that, get, that go on.
2: Yeah, reducing some of that redundancy. Another area that you write about uh, that requires drastic improvement is the top-down funding system uh, that inserts the federal government into local infrastructure decisions. And you uh, point out that the federal government acts as an intermediary by collecting taxes on users, redistributing uh, those taxes back to states or project sponsors, and that uh, creates a, a bit of a backlog and a delay as well. Describe what happens and what should happen.
4: Yeah, that, that's right. The federal government acts as a middleman for things like highways, um, airports, and, uh, and waterways. We, we basically see a tax being paid by the users, either through gasoline or your fare on an airport. It gets sucked to Washington, put through the whole political process, whereby every member of Congress gets their uh, pet projects put into the bill, and then distributed back, laden not only with these bad projects, but also with a ton of regulations. And so we see a lot of things happen like uh the federal government decides how airports can portray themselves in uh, advertisement or dictate to uh to cities what kind of uh, art on their crosswalks is permissible and not permissible. So it, w- it would be much easier just to cut out the whole middleman um, from, from from the process, allow the states and localities to raise the money themselves and be able to uh, better and uh, more efficiently go about uh, maintaining their own infrastructure.
2: Well, you write about uh, these two ways that we've just discussed. Excessive environmental regulation, funding schemes are just two of the many ways the federal government impedes infrastructure development. There are others. The right way forward is not Uh, To break the bank, which ought to be uh, encouraging to those of us who pay taxes. Um, uh, Are you optimistic that uh, the the direction and the pace that the federal government is likely to take uh, following the president's uh, budget, which is a suggestion for Congress, that this is going to be a more thoughtful approach to how to make this process more efficient?
4: I I am optimistic on the the regulatory side. It does seem to be Bipartisan, bipartisan acknowledgement that the current uh, process is unacceptable. And President Obama himself, to his credit, admitted as much. So there, I think there is going to be some movement there. On the other hand, I am not optimistic when it comes to the funding picture. I think everyone is just scrambling to spend as much money as they possibly can. We saw this with the latest budget agreement. That just came out where uh, the Congress gave itself $300 billion more money to spend. So uh, unfortunately, I think it's going to take a lot more to get them to seriously rethink uh, the fiscal side of the picture.
2: Well, I appreciate your helping us become better informed and uh, thoughtful on our, in our own right on these issues. And perhaps we can influence those decision makers. Michael Sargent, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Georgine. Appreciate it very much. Michael Sargent is a policy analyst in transportation and infrastructure at the Institute for Economic Freedom and Opportunity at the Heritage Foundation. Up next, we're going to talk with Phyllis Bennett, who's the director of Women's Transformational Leadership and uh, Training. She's uh, at the Women's Center for Ministry at Western Seminary. We're also going to talk with Whitney Willard, who's a writer, a speaker, and women's Bible teacher here in Portland. They are both part of IGNITE, coming to the Portland area, March. The Third, we're going to give you all the important details and I hope you will join us. This is a uh, really a, an uh, important women's event in our community. We'll make sure you have all the necessary details in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, as you may know, I am excited about a women's event that's coming to the Portland area once again on March the 3rd, and I am referring to Ignite. The theme this year is centered around hope for a broken world. And I don't care where you've been or what you're doing, it's obvious that our world desperately needs hope. And for those of us who are followers of Christ, we oftentimes need to be reminded where our hope lies as well. I am so delighted to have with me in studio Phyllis Bennett. She graduated from Western with an MDiv in pastoral care to women. She went on to earn her uh, doctorate in ministry from Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary and Effective Women's Ministries. She's also served as a faculty adjunct at Western Seminary. She teaches two classes, one to equip women to write Bible study curriculum and a second to equip them to deliver biblically sound, relevant, and applicable messages for today's intergenerational audiences. Oh, how desperate we are for that kind of of, of training. In addition, she serves as a director of women's ministries and uh, as a pastor's wife in churches on both the East and West coasts. Oh my goodness, I'm tired just giving the introduction. She's also been a popular retreat and conference speaker bringing the shepherd's heart to in, uh, to women, encouraging them to embrace God's word. And the keynote this year at Ignite is Whitney Willard. She is a writer, a speaker. She's a women's Bible study teacher here in Portland where she and her hun- husband Neil are members of Henson Baptist Church. She holds an MA in Biblical and Theological Studies from Western, and loves sharing her passion for Jesus, the Bible, and good theology uh, with others. Welcome to both of you. Thank you so much, not only for being here, but for being part of Ignite.
5: We are very excited to be a part of Ignite. I'm so uh, thrilled to have you a part of it, of Ignite
2: as well, Georgine. As well, it, a... it really is an honor. You have assembled an incredible group of women who are going to bring the heart of God through His Word to encourage all of us around this this subject of hope that our world desperately needs. Now, um, Whitney, you are the keynote speaker. Give us a little bit of of what you're going to be sharing as we focus our attention on hope. Absolutely. Well, I have a unique role, I
0: think, in this topic this year as um, this is actually the first time I'll be teaching in almost a year as I've been out battling late stage Lyme disease. Mm. And so I have been in the midst of so much brokenness this year. I, I, you know, with something like this, with an illness like this, you feel the brokenness, not just um, on like a day by day basis, but often on a moment by moment basis. And so when Phyllis came to me with with this teaching, with this topic of hope for a broken world, I just thought this is this is right. This is you know I I, I can't wait to share this. And so God's been working this deeper, more meaningful sense of hope in me as I suffer and as I see brokenness in all different facets of mm-hmm. life, relationally and physically and. and And the brokenness of a broken body or perhaps through mental illness, a broken brain. I mean, I'm just seeing it in all different avenues of my life. And I get to come this year and bring hope through a text in Romans 5, um, just about how our suffering produces hope and, and God's love. And then also through a case study of the woman who bled for 12 years in Mark Five and just show how um, Jesus's healing power when he came uh, brings hope to a broken world.
2: You know, I so appreciate your sharing your backstory because I think a lot of times women assume that when a speaker approaches a platform, she is speaking theoretically about what hope should look like, what it should feel like, mm. in difficult circumstances that you, the audience, are experiencing, mm. but I'm, I am above. And yet what you're describing is a difficult walk through a season that has borne fruit that you're going to share with us at mm. Ignite.
0: Absolutely yes, and I even said when we did uh, we did a promo for Ignite, and I said I'm coming as just another broken woman. I'm right in the throes yeah. of brokenness, who needs to be ministered to by God's Word, who needs powerful worship among other broken women, who I I myself need fresh hope for this journey, and so I feel like I'm coming. Right you know, alongside these other women, and together we 're going to experience god 's hope
2: mm, amen. One of the things I appreciate Phyllis about Ignite is that it always focuses on a relevant, timely subject, and I know that that doesn 't just come by you know a whim, but you spend you and other women in our community spend concerted time really seeking the Lord for what would minister to women right now in our community, and this year, hopes definitely seems to be the right theme
5: yes and. Every year I gather what we call the brainstorming team, women who are directors of women's ministries, pastor to women from uh, women in our community that are in key positions um, in the business world. And we all gather together for um, a morning from nine until one, seeking the heart of God, asking him, Lord, what is your theme for uh, our city for this year? We have Revive in the fall and we have Ignite in the spring. Mm And um, Ignite is a citywide uh, event, and Revive is, focuses more on leaders. And we, we love the fact that God so clearly speaks. Mm. Uh, and, and we break down into small groups and pray, and then we come back together and we see, what has the Lord been saying? And hope, 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 mm. hope. <laughs> it was just uh, welling up from all of us that that was God's theme for this year.
2: Now, in addition to that being the theme of the keynote addresses that we'll have the opportunity to hear, it really is a theme that runs throughout all of the workshops uh, and opportunities for people to gather in smaller groups and focus on specific subjects.
5: Yes, and I I love the fact that we... I, I have the privilege of gathering uh, what I feel are some of the very best speakers and Uh, Bible expositors in our city to um, glean from their wisdom in this area. And so like Karen House, who has been our keynote in the past, is going to be speaking on finding hope when God seems silent. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Julie Tadema will be speaking on storming the gates, prayer strategies for a broken world. Um, Taylor Turkington, thriving in the hope of God's redemptive story. And each one of these will be looking at hope from a slightly different perspective. Hope for our teens. We want every woman who comes to feel like where are you feeling hopeless? We mm-hmm. we have a lab for you to go to. There are twenty labs, ten in the morning and ten in the afternoon.
2: We're talking about ignite. It's coming up on Saturday, March the third. It's Bible focused with a keynote address, a series of them, meaningful cooperative worship, a corporate worship rather. And it's I love the worship time because we really have the opportunity to enter in. There's powerful prayer. There are that are designed to break through our hopelessness uh, in a time when our world desperately needs it, and we as women of faith need to uh, be able to reflect that hope back into the culture that God has called us to. Ignite this year, as in previous years, is at Vancouver Church. The cost is $30 online. And let me tell you, if you pre-register, you can save $8 because registration at the door is $38. So it'd be a great idea for you to register now, early and often. Bring your girlfriends with you. This is something you want to share with others. And I believe that God is going to meet each one of us whose hearts are open in a very unique and special way. We're going to have an encounter with Christ that's going Going to make a difference, not only in our lives personally, but those whose lives we touch on a regular basis. And I would love to see the city of Portland transformed because the women of God took some time, took a moment, we paused and just reflected on the hope that we share in Christ. And what a great opportunity that Ignite uh, presents. Now, it's a day-long event, so kind of describe how the day goes for those who've never attended. Okay, first of all, if you come with a group of 10, y- you
5: get the price, um, price break um, of $25, and many have been signing up just email us and we'll give you the group code um so you can register in that way and you can give that code out to the women in your church if you're confident that you'll have 10 uh, our day begins well for the speakers we're we're there at uh, we're we're there really early but uh everybody else can get there about 8:15 and by 8:50 we're into worship from 8:50 to about 9:20 and so a a full half
2: hour of worship to be filled up with God's hope. And let me just say, Lisa Reef and the team yes. do such a spectacular job of leading us into the presence of Christ. There's no wasted time or effort. We are there together as women, and it's interesting to see how he unites our hearts so quickly.
5: Yes, and she has three young worship leaders on the team this year that I'm very excited to um, expose to the night stage. Uh, and one is um, is a worship leader nationally and internationally, and another one is a graphic designer. Uh, the, the gal who um, is on percussion has gotten some training in a, uh, in a college that was focused specifically on young people gaining uh, worship experience. Mm, mm. So I, I, I'm really excited about adding those three younger ones to the team. So, uh, and Lisa just does a, a yes. marvelous job of heading it up.
2: Yeah, she does. And then there are opportunities for two breakout sessions of, of your choosing. And you can go to the website for all the information that you need um, on uh, on those sessions so that you can register. And I'm, I'm desperately searching my page for the website uh, where we can do that. Phyllis, can you help me? Uh,
5: yes, I should <laughs> be able to help you. You would think I would be able to help you. What I'm hearing is um, questions. Contact WCM at westernseminary.edu, but that's not Ignite. If you just type into it, Ignite into
2: Google, it will bring it right up. Yeah, I apologize. I should have had that in front of me. Well, um, and it looks like for
0: more information and to register, you can go to westernseminary.edu oh, slash Ignite, and that should take you right there. Um for more information and to it. register, right off, right off the bat, there on that that website.
2: Now, let me encourage you: if you are coming with a group, you are welcome. If you're coming by yourself, I promise you that when you arrive, you will be among a group of women who love the Lord, who will love on you. You're going to be a part of a, of the family. So, don't hesitate to come. If you have to come by yourself, because you will be made welcome, and this is going to be a, a tremendous opportunity for women in our community to embrace the hope that uh, we find in Christ for our broken world. Well, I'm excited about Ignite. I thank you both for the effort that you put into making this an event that's going to minister to women in our community. And I'm looking forward to March the 3rd at Vancouver Church. We are, too. (laughs)
0: Absolutely. Yeah, we're so excited. And I just want to end by saying that I I want women to know that I have been praying for them through my Mm. own journey, through my preparation time. I really, really want this to be just a safe space for broken, hurting women to come and to um, experience that hope. So I would just encourage women, if you're kind of on the fence, that that I'm going to do everything I can to be there and and share God's word. But it's going to be, I really believe it's going to be a safe place that's going to bring a a real sense of refreshment and
2: encouragement. Mm, Don't we desperately need that? Thank you so much. And
0: Whitney is such a fabulous Bible expositor.
5: She just brings the scriptures alive. But um, people of scripture just pop off the page and right into your heart.
2: <laughs> Wonderful. Ignite coming up on March the 3rd at Vancouver Church. Thanks, girls. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Hey, you're Georgine. listening uh, to the Georgine Rice Show. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about, well, Lent. It's coming up. We'll tell you what it is and whether or not you want to practice. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast, it is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. I don't know what tradition you might have grown up with if you were in the church as a young person or a younger person, but uh, we didn't acknowledge or celebrate or observe Lent. But this Wednesday, Christians around the world will begin their observance of the season of Lent beginning on Ash Wednesday and lasting until the week before Christmas or... Christmas before Easter Sunday. Let's get our Advents correct. The Lenten season is 40 days, excluding Sundays, and this echoes the 40 days Jesus spent in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry. Now, this is not a condition of salvation, either to achieve it or to maintain it. This is just a way in which believers around the world, uh, in certain traditions, uh, set aside time to focus on Uh, things related to their faith and their walk with God. Many people have some idea that Lent is about giving things up, but they... uh they may not know much more than that. Lent is not meant to be a dour season that uh, you might imagine or have heard. Lent began as a time to prepare for Easter celebrations, especially for those who are to be baptized. Later, it was geared toward um, restoring those who had grievously sinned in the fellowship of the church. In fact, the word Lent comes from an old English word that means spring season. Many of us do a spring cleaning of our homes and Lent is, uh, as it comes in the spring, is sort of a spring cleaning of the soul. You don't have to be Catholic to be part of a Christian church that observes Lent, or liturgical for that matter, to make your own journey through the season. Lent can be for everyone. It's uh, quite simply a time to focus on how we can be better followers of Jesus. Now, no one should give up something for Lent for the sake of misery itself. Misery is not God's desire. Instead, we might give things up that... Um, That take us away from Jesus to make more room for things that bring us closer to him. So if you watch too much television, for example, you might give up television to make more time for prayer or service of those in need or even quality time with the family. The word Lent comes from the Old English. Again, it means spring season. And many of us who do the spring cleaning of our homes are doing the spring cleaning of the soul. Now, in our culture, where most of us consume more than we need, the custom of self-denial can be pretty helpful. Again, it's not about misery. uh, You might fast, for example, which means skipping a meal to remind yourself that meals are a gift from God. In doing that, you're you're reminded that you depend on God, not on things or your own efforts. In other words, giving things. Things up can help you notice that it's not all about, well, you or me. Lately, it's become more common to take things on for the season of Lent. People might decide to read the Bible or pray more, might also decide to focus on something like forgiveness. How can we practice forgiving others? Who do we need to forgive? Lent begins with Ash Wednesday, which is tomorrow, as ashes are imposed with a solemn reminder. Remind you. Remember, you are dust, and to dust you shall return, or similar words are spoken. And while it sounds very grim, it's actually a loving reminder that our earthly life is very short, very precious, and it's a gift. It is God's desire that we use this gift, and then, after the reminder, we have a whole season to think about how we can follow Jesus and become more like Him. If you have never tried uh, Lent, and if you grew up with Lent as a season of punishment, you might want to give it a try this year. Again, it's not necessary, but it might be helpful. There are plenty of resources you can find online, and your local church might help you through this journey of the season. The season can be a gift to us, uh, and accepting the gift of Lent as we... uh Seek to grow in our full stature in Christ. Now, Matthew Ingalls, he says of Lent, to have ashes smeared on your forehead is to embrace a grim truth about our limits. We are not God. From dust we were made. We will arrive here from the same humble beginnings. We all arrived here from the same humble beginnings. No one among us came from anything other than uh, the earthly design of human birth. And to dust we will return We are mortal. What we have on this earth will end after a good long life, perhaps, and maybe far too long. Regardless, death's grim grip will overwhelm even the strongest among us. We each live subject to the human constraints of death, weakness, sin, shame, and pain. The ashes remind us of that, uh, that... uh, Uh, As fleeting flowers in the field here today and gone tomorrow, so are we. The rest of the year, we may be tempted to mask, hide, deny or run away from our constraints. Perhaps we think we can undo our weakness or maybe we can live only out of our strength, avoiding the need for displaying our weakness before others or worse. Perhaps we deny our our constrictions altogether altogether. Uh, But Ash Wednesday gives us an opportunity. It compels us to look at uh, uh, all of this squarely in the face. It's a public rehearsal of Jesus' parable. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I I get. But the tax collector stood in a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man rather than the other went home justified before God for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be Exalted. Well, humility leads to unity. This moment of dust serves two crucial purposes in the journey of a disciple. It's a reminder that no matter how we change and grow, we are altogether different from uh, the one we worship. It's also a reminder that no matter how pure we may think ourselves, we are altogether the same as every human around us. We are but dust. Anyway, the Lenten season begins tomorrow. Well, taking a quick look at uh, the remainder of the week tomorrow, of course, we are partnering with our good friends, um, uh, India partners, and we're going to give you an opportunity to join us as we explain the plight of uh, children in India whose uh, life situation is is unbearable to even contemplate, let alone have to endure. So we're going to, of course, ask you not only to become better aware of the situation there and the work of India partners, but to Join us in supporting efforts to rescue children from a life that is intolerable in any culture and under any circumstance. So I hope you'll plan to join us for that. It's going to be a a great opportunity for us, uh, again, to, uh, to reach out from... The, the place we live that's familiar to us and into a world that is is in desperate need of, uh, of help. And what a great thing it is to have the opportunity to come alongside a ministry that's effectively uh, working and helping children. Then on Thursday, we'll talk with Catherine Clark. She's the author of Where I End, A Story of Tragedy, Truth and Rebellious Hope. The book is published by Moody. And then on Friday, all things um, being as we hope, we're going to lighten up and have a little fun on a Friday afternoon. We haven't done that, if I recall correctly, in a while. So I'm looking forward to having a a fun Friday afternoon. also want to encourage you uh, to check out Ignite, the website, for more information about the Women's Conference that's coming up here in just a couple of weeks, March the 3rd. Um, we're focusing on hope for a broken world. And don't we need to be reminded of uh, how to uh, grip and hold on to hope in some of the more challenging circumstances we face as individuals, as the body of Christ, as people in a culture, in a world that is uh, desperate for, uh, for hope that, uh, that lasts. So you can find out more um, at uh, the website for Ignite. Uh, Hope for a Broken World, or go to Western Seminary, and all the important details are there. You can also register online. There's a discount if you do that right up until, I think it's the week before the conference. You can register on site as well, but it's always more helpful if you can uh, do that ahead of time. And you are uh, uh, you can also purchase lunch uh, at the event if you uh, register online, so do check that out. Um, Ignite coming up on March the 3rd at Vancouver Church, and this is a ministry of Western Seminary Uh, for women. All right. Well, we are just about out of time. I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blend for engineering a portion of today's program and producing all of the program. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night.
1: Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook.